0: Hello, church family. If you have your Bibles with you, I hope and pray you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Revelation 2. Revelation 2, verses 12 through verse 17. The church at Pergamum. Well, uh, just when I thought my days of preaching to a camera were over. Um, latter portion of this week, I began to feel a little under the weather. And uh, so this weekend, I uh, decided out of an abundance of caution to come up and uh, record this message. Uh, I wanted to preach this passage this weekend, and uh, I'm grateful for the technology that allows me to do this, and I'm grateful for uh, your graciousness in allowing me to deliver this message in this way. Before we jump into our passage, I want to lead us to pray. We, we need to pray uh, this weekend. Certainly, we need to pray uh, for our nation and its leaders And those in Afghanistan, uh, especially uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are there, who are now uh, facing some very uh, dire circumstances. And so uh, we want to pray together as a church for Afghanistan and for our nation and its leadership and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, But as is customary this time of year, we also want to pray for our teachers and our students. Um, Teachers and students are headed back to school. Many have already begun school, and certainly there's unique sets of challenges this year, and we want to pray for our teachers and those that know Christ and seek to be a light in those environments that God would protect them and God would use them to be a light in the midst of all the circumstances and challenges that they are facing. So right now, I just want to encourage you to join me as we pray together. Father, we we come before you this morning, and we want to pray very specifically for our nation and its leadership, our president and his advisors. Lord, I I pray that you would guide them. I pray that you would put believers around those leaders, men and women of wisdom, who would help so that right decisions might be made. Pray that you would guide them. We know that you are Sovereign over these circumstances Lord we pray for those within Afghanistan Who are now in harm's way Pray for those who are Seeking to leave that country That God you would protect them And provide a way for them To exit out safely We pray for our soldiers Those who are serving So courageously In the midst of a difficult circumstance That God you would protect them that you would guard them, you would keep them safe, Lord, you'd bring them home soon. Lord, we want to pray especially for our brothers and sisters in Christ there in Afghanistan who now are marked and they are facing persecution. Lord, we pray that you would protect them. We pray that you would remind them of your presence. We pray especially for church leaders and pastors and missionaries within that country. That God, in the midst of this difficult circumstance, they would shine the light of the gospel. And even in the midst of all these things, that your gospel and your kingdom would advance. Lord, we thank you for knowing that you're with us. Lord, we, we pray this time of year for our teachers and students as they're beginning a new year. We want to pray that your good hand of favor would be upon those teachers who seek to be a light in classrooms all across this city. God, we pray that you'd protect them. We pray in the midst of the challenges that they would have the spirit of Christ and the light of Christ would be demonstrated in them. Not just what they do, but how they live. We pray for students who are seeking to be a light in their campuses and at their schools. Lord, bless them and encourage them as they seek to live for you. Lord, we we thank you for the opportunity to gather today and. We pray, Lord, that you would bless the study of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've been studying these seven letters, we have seen in Ephesus a church that had lost its first love. We've seen a suffering church, the church at Smyrna. And today, as we come to Pergamum, we find a church that is compromising. What I want us to do is just to read this passage together and then we'll work our way through it. So look with me, Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, To him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. We notice here that Jesus uses the same pattern that he's used with Ephesus and Smyrna. He begins with a description of himself drawn from chapter 1 of Revelation. Here in verse 12 he says to the angel of the church uh, Pergamum Wright, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, says this, he identifies himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And I can only imagine that that very quickly caught their attention. There are some of the commentators that when they see this sharp two-edged sword, they talk about how the fact that the word of God is two-sided, that it... It blesses, but it also judges, and certainly that is true. But let's be honest here. If, if you're sitting in that congregation waiting eagerly to hear Christ's letter to your church, and he begins by describing himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, what would your reaction be? I don't know about you, but for me, number one, he has my attention And number two, I'm quickly reminded through this description that while Jesus is to be loved, he is also to be feared. Make no mistake about it, Christ uses this introduction, this description as a clear warning. You do not mess with me, and you do not mess with my word. My word is sharp. It cuts to the division of soul and spirit of the thoughts and the intention of the heart. As we're going to see, this is a church that's compromised. They're tolerating false teachers and immoral behavior. And right out of the gate, Christ identifies himself and reminds them that I'm the ultimate judge. Ultimate judgment belongs to me. I'm the final judge. I'm the final authority. I'm to be loved, but I'm also to be feared. And in verse 13, look at what it says. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus says to them, in a way of encouragement, I know where you live, I know where you dwell. You know, the the blatant and the, the open immorality of Pergamum was overwhelming. In fact, Jesus says you dwell where Satan's throne is, meaning you're living in the headquarters of hell. Pergamum was said to be the the foremost city when it came to emperor worship, the worship of Caesar. They also had this, this huge altar, this temple to Zeus, which was a prominent landmark in their city. They had a temple to a god of healing where they worshipped snakes, a, a temple that was filled with snakes, and if you were ill, you laid in that temple hoping a snake would touch you, and it was supposed to indicate that God himself had touched you and you would be healed. They had many other temples. In fact, they had more temples than any other ancient city in that world. And the worship at those temples included all kinds of sexual immorality and temple prostitutes and all kinds of paganism and witchcraft. I think it's probably hard for us to imagine the depths of immorality. I mean, let's be honest, it it has to be pretty bad for Jesus to, to call it the place where Satan dwells. And you can only imagine how these people must have felt That, Lord, we're not sure that we can survive here. We're not sure in the midst of this kind of sin and immorality that we can hold out and shine the light of the gospel. And Jesus says to them, as a means of encouragement, I know where you dwell. I know the difficulty that you're facing. As I was studying this, I thought about the missionaries who are serving in very dark and difficult places and I can imagine that at certain points along the way as they serve in those dark places, the thought goes through their minds, Lord, I'm not sure that we could minister here. You know what the Lord says? I I I know where you dwell. I thought this week about the college students who have been dropped off at at dormitories and fraternity houses and sorority houses, and they're beginning to be exposed to the immorality that's around them, and they're seeking to be a light for Christ and to share the gospel. And they're probably thinking, Lord, I'm not sure I can do it. I'm not sure I can hold out and, and shine the light of the gospel. And you know what Jesus says to you today? I know where you dwell. I know what you're facing. I think about the employees who are serving the Lord in very difficult work environments where they're pressured to cave to the immorality of the world. And they're thinking, Lord, I don't know if I can survive here. I don't know that I can hold out for you. And you know what Jesus says to you today? I know where you dwell. What an encouragement that Jesus knows your situation Nothing escapes his notice, and he knows the difficulty of your circumstances. And Christ here commends them for their faithfulness. You, you held fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, who was killed. See, he commends them not just for where they live and the difficulty of their circumstances, but he commends them for how they're living—that they have stood firm in a in a very difficult place. It appears obvious that they were facing extreme pressure to incorporate Caesar into their worship. You see, they were not persecuted simply because they worshipped Christ. They were persecuted because they worshipped Christ alone. That's what got Antipas killed. He wouldn't name Caesar as God. He said, I worship Christ alone. And they killed him for it. And folks, we, we face similar pressures today. If you say today that you believe that Jesus is simply a way to God, it's not that big of a problem. You probably won't face that much resistance. However, we, we are a people who believe that, that Christ was not mistaken when he said that, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We stand boldly upon the truth of God's word today and declare that there's no other way to get to God except through Christ. He's the only way to God. And we worship Christ alone. And so the worship of Christ alone brought pressure, it brought persecution. And so Christ encourages them I know where you live, and I know how you've lived. You live in a dark place, the dwelling place of Satan, and you've not denied me. you've not denied faith in me alone, even when it cost you life. But notice here that the, the tense is it's past tense: did not to die, who was killed? In, in other words, he's saying, you, "You've been a great church. You, you, you've been a faithful church, but apparently Jesus has a concern about their current state. Look with me at verse 14, but I I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. And then in verse 15, so you also have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So he's saying you have been great, but there's a current concern there's an issue in the church that needs to be addressed that's not being addressed. He says, you have some, not everyone, but you have some who are holding the teaching of Balaam. Now, what is this? Well, well, Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24, Israel is on the way to the promised land, and they are whipping everyone who stands in their path. And the Moabites are next on the list, and, and they're scared Israel's going to kill us. They're going to wipe us us out. And so Balak, the, the Moabite king, hires Balaam, a prophet, to curse Israel. And Balaam is supposed to be a prophet of God, and yet he compromises for the purpose of money. He should have never entertained Balak's offer, but for the love of money, he starts working with an immoral and pagan king. Now the problem was God would not let him curse Israel. But here's the deal, if Israel isn't cursed, he doesn't get paid. So what he decides is that if I can't get God to curse them, maybe I can get God to judge them. And he advises the Moabites to lure the Israelite men into compromise through Moabite prostitutes. These soldiers, they've been out in the desert eating only manna. And his advice to them is take some meat, take some T-bone steaks, meat that's been sacrificed to idols, and and take some temple prostitutes and lure these men into immorality and idol worship, and then God will judge them. And that's exactly what they did. They got Israel to compromise. Now make no mistake about it, none of those Israelite men saw themselves as abandoning God. God. They were just adding a second God, that I can still be a Jew, I can still be a part of God's people and engage in immoral activity, and God will be okay with it. That I can live on on both sides of the street, that I can worship God and also worship idols. Well, how does it end? Not good. God was not okay with it. 24,000 Israelites died in one day as God judged them for their sin. So do you see the teaching of Balaam? Just, just add some paganism and immorality to your worship of God. I mean, you don't, you don't have to abandon God. Just add some other of this worldly immorality. Well, then you see the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What was this about? Well, it was a similar deal. Uh, the Nicolaitans were a Gnostic cult, and we don't have time to go into the depths of Gnosticism, but apparently the Nicolaitans were the enlightened and educated folks. They had a higher knowledge. They had graduated beyond the, the elementary teachings of of the Bible. That the ideas of right and wrong and morality, those were antique ideas. They were enlightened. They understood that the world in your flesh, it, it didn't really matter how you lived. It was, it was inconsequential. So listen, what does it hurt if you get drunk every now and then? And what's wrong with a little sexual immorality? It's not that big of a deal. All that matters is your spirit. In other words, don't be such a square. Come on, man. Morality, right and wrong, those are ancient ideas. Doesn't matter what you do in the flesh. And both of these teachings were were an effort to get the people of God to compromise in areas of uh, morality. That they can have God and also indulge in sin. And you know what I believe? This is one of the primary tactics of Satan in his attempt to destroy the church. See, oftentimes Satan will not attack the church outright. Oftentimes he's not that blatant. He's much more subtle. See, Satan understands just like Balaam that I may not be able to get God to curse the church, but maybe I can get God to judge the church by leading them into compromise. Satan is so subtle. He's so deceitful. See, he, he, oftentimes he won't get you to, to abandon God altogether. I'll just get you to add some immorality to your life and think that God is okay with it. This is what's happening at Pergamum. The false teachers in the church, those of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, were telling the believers there, what's wrong with going over to the temples and eating some of that meat that's been sacrificed to idols? I mean, we still believe in God. And the temples in that city were like restaurants. In fact, they had most of the meat. But they were eating meat that had been offered to idols, and they were eating it as a part of a celebration of those gods. And these false teachers are encouraging them to compromise And because of this, the church is losing its distinctiveness, its holiness. They're going the way of the rest of the godless society around them. And worse yet, they still consider themselves to be Christians. They were in direct disobedience to God. In fact, uh, the, the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, when the Gentiles are coming to faith... The question is, what are we going to require of them? What burden shall we put on them? Do, do, do they need to get circumcised? And, and James, in Acts 15, 19 through 20, says, Therefore it is it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, and from fornication, and from what's strangled, and from blood." I mean, do you see this? what what these false teachers, these Balaamites and the Nicolaitans, what they're encouraging the, the believers to do? They were encouraging them to live in direct contradiction towards apostolic teaching. More simplistically, they're teaching them and encouraging them to disobey the Word of God. And as you look at this, what sticks out to me is that Jesus does not condemn those who teach these things. He condemns the church for letting it slide. He condemns the church for not calling it out. he's, He's calling the church and its leadership to engage in what I would call some Barney Fife sanctification, to nip it in the bud. I mean, do, do you see what ha- is happening here? The church is compromising on, on biblical issues of morality. They're, they're getting caught up in the downward current of a decaying society and culture. They're disobeying God and losing their effectiveness and they're, they're in danger of being judged by Christ. Now, is this not relevant for us today? The church today is, is being pressured in so many ways to cave in areas of biblical morality and truth. And the fact of the matter is, so many churches have already caved. I mean, just to give you a a simple illustration, if we say, if we say that marriage is a divinely ordained union between one man and one woman, The world around us will say, come on, man, get with the times. I mean, those are ancient ideas. We've progressed beyond that. And we're pressured to compromise. Not to abandon Christ, but to compromise in areas where the Bible has spoken clearly on issues of morality. And I could go down a whole list of other areas. I mean, the idea of so many Christians is that, hey, we we believe in God, but let's not get too radical. Let's not get too crazy or carried away with all this stuff and all its implications. And what you end up with far too many times is a a form of Christianity where the church looks more like the world than like Christ. It's a syncretism. It's a mixture of Christianity and secular paganism. Yes, we believe in God, but we also want to live like the world. Now, how how, is, how how important is this? How significant is this to the to the heart of God? Well, look at verse sixteen. He says, "Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and will make war against them with the sword of my mouth." I mean, those are some pretty serious words from Jesus. He says, "Repent, not of false teaching." But repent of the tolerance of false teaching. You know, we've said this before as we're reading these letters to the churches here in Revelation. We're learning what Christ likes. We're learning what he doesn't like. And it's pretty here clear here that Christ doesn't like it when the church tolerates teaching that encourages believers to compromise and to engage in immoral behavior. And Jesus says, essentially, he says, you deal with them or I'll deal with them. I mean, Jesus, says, I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Do you understand this today? That Christ will come against people who are in the church? That there are those in the church who have compromised the gospel. They've been blatant in their disobedience to the word. And they've discovered to their own spiritual peril that Christ has come against them. And part of the church's responsibility is to correct them. I mean, Jesus is saying, "Do, do, do you love these people? I mean, don't you love these folks? Well, why don't you love them enough to confront them? so that i don't have to fight against them so if you know someone in the church who calls themselves a christian and they're holding on to sin they're compromising the gospel they're trying to mix sin with christianity if you don't say anything that's the most hurtful thing you can do to them uh, maybe you've um confronted someone and let, let me just say here as you can when i talk about confronting someone this means talking to a person in humility, not in arrogance. It means you put your arm of love around a brother or sister in Christ and you say, I love you and I'm not perfect, but I see something in your life that's leading you down a path of destruction. But maybe you faced a situation where you've confronted somebody and they accused you of being what? They accused you of being judgmental. And they say, we're supposed to be Christians. We don't judge people. Listen, the Bible tells us specifically that we're to judge those who are in the church. See also 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Oh, Lord, forgive us for those times when we thought the most loving thing that we could do for a person is leave them alone. I don't know about you, but if I am heading in the wrong direction... I would much rather hear it from a brother who loves me than to have to deal with God and have him come against me. So Jesus says in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna and I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Him who overcomes, who overcomes what? Who overcomes an attitude of compromise with the world. He says, those who overcome, I'll give hidden manna. In Exodus, manna was supernatural. Uh, It was a supernatural bread-like substance. It was food from God. It was a gift from heaven. You know, in John 6, Jesus tells uh, the Jews and the disciples That I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. Do you know what I believe the hidden manna is? It's Christ. And those who overcome an attitude of compromise and apathy and and indifference towards Christ, they get to enjoy the fullness of joy that only comes through Christ. See, the, the ultimate reward for those who are faithful to Christ and who do not deny Christ is that they discover that there are riches and satisfi- satisfaction in Christ that is far beyond anything they can experience in this godless and rebellious world. It's Paul in, in Philippians chapter 3 who understood what it was to have much, but then to find Christ and to say, that all those things he had and let go of i count them but rubbish in order that i may gain christ and know him see paul discovered that there's nothing that satisfies like jesus he had lost the taste for the stuff of the world because he found the ultimate feast in the true bread of life jesus christ and then he says that they'll receive a white stone with a name on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. After the games, there was always a, a victory feast. And it was only for the victorious. If you were victorious, you got a white stone with your name on it. And it was your entrance ticket into that, that victory feast. You know, one day those who are true to Christ, who truly know him and are, are faithful, but not, not perfect as I mentioned last week, but faithful, always fighting to the end, striving towards Christ's likeness They'll receive a victory stone and they'll have entrance to the, the victory feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says that on that stone will be a new name, And it's a name that'll mean a ton to you, but it it means nothing to everyone else. I, I believe it'll have something to do with your relationship to Christ. A moment in your walk with God that no one knows except you and God. And you're gonna see that stone and you're gonna see that name and you will know that God was there. It's a reminder that that you're not just a number to God. That Christ looks at me and you and knows us as individuals. And that name will represent my individual and my personal relationship with Christ. So do you see Christ's message to the church at Pergamum? I know you're living in a tough environment. Can we identify yes? And he says to them and he says to us, I know where you live And I know your faithfulness. Continue in faithfulness. Don't compromise and don't tolerate believers who do. Be faithful. And and you may lose some friends. I mean, you you call a person out. You confront a brother and sister in Christ. And you know what I've learned more often than not? They're not going to like it initially. I don't know about you, but... I rarely enjoy being critiqued. But the prayer is that they'll see the error of their way. They'll correct their life. Christ will not come against them. They'll have a deeper relationship with Christ. And prayerfully, they'll have a better relationship with you. But regardless, Jesus says, be faithful. Be faithful to Christ. And and there might be some things as you as you're faithful to Christ, there might be some things that you have to let go of. Some things that you might lose. You you be faithful to Christ in the midst of our culture and world, and you hold to faith in Christ alone and to biblical morality, quite frankly, you might lose your job. You might lose position. You might lose status. You might lose out on money or business opportunities. You may even lose your life like Antipas. But do you realize what Jesus is saying here? You stay faithful to me, and it may not be easy. And you might lose some things, but you will gain a unique relationship with me. What a promise. What a treasure. Can I just ask you today, have you compromised? Have you bought into the lie of Satan that you can worship Christ and also engage in sin and immorality? Maybe you'd say, well, I haven't abandoned Christ. I still believe in Jesus. But I've added immorality and sin. I'm walking in disobedience. You know what my encouragement to you today would be and what the encouragement of Christ is? Repent. Turn from your sin and and turn back to Christ. He's gracious and and faithful to forgive all who come to him with a heart of repentance. Be faithful to him. And I can promise you, no matter what you let go of, it will pale in comparison to the treasure that you gain in a unique relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah, this week, as I've been studying this, a hymn has repeatedly come to my mind. It's a it's my personal favorite. He says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than worldly applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than, than worldwide fame. Yes, I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And I tell you this morning, there's no treasure like the treasure of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, this afternoon, today, Lord, we we thank you for the treasure of Christ. Lord, we live in a world and a culture not unlike Pergamum where we're pressured on every side to compromise. Oftentimes, not to abandon you or our faith in you, but just to add another God or to add some immorality and buy into the lie of Satan that you'd be okay with it. We know you're a jealous God. I pray, Lord, this morning, this afternoon, today, we would put away all other gods. I pray that we would worship you alone. We'd lay down all sin and immorality that's come between us and you, and we would repent. Father, I pray for the one who doesn't know you. the one who's never placed their faith in you, I pray today they would see the treasure of Christ who died in their place for their sins so that they could have a relationship with you forever. Lord, convict them of their sin. Draw them to yourself. And may they trust in Christ and know his salvation. For those of us that do know you, please, Lord, help us to be faithful. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. We're going to give you an opportunity today to respond in whatever way Christ is leading on your heart. I'm going to encourage you to stand. Maybe today you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus, as your personal Lord and Savior, there'll be pastors here at the front who would love to talk to you about a personal relationship with Christ. Um, Maybe you'd like to unite with our church family. Maybe you just want to pray. This is your time. Know this, you will never regret obeying Jesus. You respond as we sing.